have two readings this morning. The first is from Isaiah chapter 45, found in the Church Bibles on page 731. Isaiah 45, verses 1 to 6. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him, and to strip kings of their armour, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you, and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze, and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name. I bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun, the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And the second reading is from 2 Colossians, chapter 2, found on page 1183 in the Church Bibles. <clears throat> I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom all hidden are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to love in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, 
having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Don, thank you very much indeed. Lord, just pray this morning that the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts would be a pleasing offering to you in Jesus' name. <coughs> Amen. One of the joys I have in visiting other churches is when people say, oh, which church are you from? And I say, St. Saviour's. Oh, yes, they say. And invariably, <coughs> I hear a good report. And that's very satisfying. And that's almost what's happening with Paul here. He's heard some good reports about these churches. But he's stuck in prison. And this passage is a wonderful passage. It's a real glimpse into Paul's heart as he struggles for Christians. He's never met, but he loves. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally, he says in verse one. You see, Paul is fighting a real spiritual battle for the Christians in those groups of three towns in the Lycus Valley, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. And he wants three things. He wants the revelation of Jesus to be their priority. He wants the understanding of Jesus to be their goal, and he wants the wisdom of Jesus to be their treasure. Now, the word that the NIV uses, contending, I'm contending for you, I don't think it really cuts the mustard. Other translations, I think, are better because they say he was struggling or being in conflict. Actually, the Greek word, agon, literally means a wrestling match. It's where we get the word agony from because Paul really is in conflict. He's wrestling in prayer on their behalf. There he is in a Roman prison, awaiting trial before Nero, facing the death penalty. He'd love to be out there visiting these young churches, pastoring them face to face, challenging the false teaching, recalling those who were straying from the truth. Instead, all he can do is pray. But he does more than that. He also writes to them, detailing his prayers. And that's something I think we can take from this passage straight away. When time and distance and circumstances separate us from those who we long to support and help, there is still prayer. We, like Paul, can wrestle in prayer on their behalf. And then we can email them, or Skype, or text. We could even write. We could tell them all about our prayers, not just saying, oh, I'm holding you in my prayers. That's not good enough. We need to be saying, this is what I'm praying for you. I want to encourage you. I want to give you hope. You see, Paul says in his introduction in chapter one, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord. Despite being in prison, 
Despite being under sentence of death, Paul is right there, battling away for his friends. How encouraging would that be to receive on a text or a Skype or an email? And maybe there's <coughs> another aspect to his struggle. He's human after all, and he's in prison. He could have saved his skin. He could have denied his calling, got out of the death penalty. But he knows if he denies Christ, it would be disastrous for these new young churches when they found out. For heart would have been taken from them, and it would be the end of Christianity for many. So Paul knows his struggle isn't for himself alone. It was also for those whose eyes are fixed on him as the leader and father in the new faith. So I think a second point, these verses remind us too that there are always those around us watching to see how we act as Christians. Have you had that experience? I'm sure you have. And our actions can have the effect of either confirming or destroying their faith. Our struggle is never for ourselves alone. Always, always the honor of Christ is in our hands and the faith of others is in our keeping. And then in verse two to seven, his prayers for the church in Colossae as it unfolds, and he gives three great marks which should distinguish a living and faithful church. Firstly, it should be a church of courageous hearts. Paul prays that their hearts may be encouraged, and the word he uses is parakalion, which means both to comfort and sometimes to exhort. One Greek historian tells the story of a Greek regiment that had lost heart and was utterly dejected. And the general sent a, a charismatic leader to give them a parakalian pep talk. And the talk was so effective, the courage was reborn and the dispirited men became fit again for heroic action. And that's the meaning that Paul uses here. His prayer is that the church in Colossae, though steadfast in faith in Christ, will have enough courage so that they can cope with any situation. He wants a church of courageous hearts. And then secondly, Paul prays that they should become a church in which the members are knit together in love. Paul wants them to be united together in love, knitted together in love. That's the original meaning of this passage. There's a lovely story about a church warden who was a bit hard of hearing. And when he heard this sermon being preached, the vicar said he wanted to see his congregation getting knitting together, starting first thing on Monday morning. And the next morning, the vicar got a knock at his door and he opened to find the church warden standing there complete with knitting needles and a ball of wool. Paul sees it as an essentially true mark of a living, thriving church a love to God and a knitting together of hearts in affection and love for each other. And then thirdly, Paul prays for them to have the treasures of wisdom and knowledge through revelation of the mystery of God. It's important to grasp the meaning of these three words in scripture, mystery, wisdom, and knowledge. Because they're not the same as we might understand them. Mystery in scripture doesn't mean a puzzle or something to be unsolved. The mystery of God is only secret in the sense that it is hidden until God reveals it. 
and it's revealed precisely so that it can be shared with others. A revelation about God, about his plan, and his plan is for the salvation of all. And it's the same with the biblical use of the word knowledge. The Greek word, gnosis, doesn't mean just gathering head information. It means the intuitive and instinctive power to grasp the truth and then act on it when we see it. You see, Paul is saying that knowledge on its own is useless unless it's relational and personal. He uses it in the sense of understanding. It's the ability to assess any situation we might face in a church fellowship. Any situation, and in the years I've been here, we have been through one or two, haven't we? But it's the ability to assess any situation and then decide what practical course of action to take. So, the mystery of God, the knowledge of Christ, and the wisdom to act. And wisdom in this context is power. Wisdom is power. It's a power to confirm the truth with wise and intelligent argument once we've intuitively grasped it. Albert Einstein had this to say about knowledge and wisdom. Information is not knowledge. The only source of knowledge is experience. You need experience to gain wisdom. Information is not knowledge. The only source of knowledge is experience. You need experience to gain wisdom. And you see, Paul is saying to the Colossians that in Jesus, God has hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. <clears throat> Yet sadly, we live in a materialistic world that equates treasure with not with knowledge, but with wealth. God gives us people to love and things to use. People to love and things to use. But we've reversed his values and we love things and we use people to get them. It's not very often we see wisdom valued more highly than wealth. You see, Paul's goal for the Colossians and for us is that we value knowing Jesus and his wisdom above all earthly treasure. He wants us to have clear-sighted wisdom to act for the very best in any situation. The wisdom which instinctively, instinctively recognizes truth when we see it. But far more than that, when we are fully alive in Christ, when we are strengthened in faith, then we can make the truth intelligible to others. Then in verse four and verses eight, two, Paul issues a warning. Verse four, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine sounding arguments. Paul is actually hitting out at the Gnostics who believed that you needed masses of elaborate knowledge in order to achieve salvation. And they attempted to wrap all this up in a load of books which were inaccessible to the ordinary people of their time. <clears throat> I wonder in some ways if we don't treat scientific knowledge a bit like that. Do we think it's inaccessible? It's only available just to a few. So Paul is calling them out. He's saying, you Gnostics have hidden all the great wisdom from you. But we too have our knowledge and wisdom. 
It's not hidden in unintelligible books. It's hidden in Christ. And because it's hidden in Christ, it's open to everybody, everywhere. The truth of Christianity is no secret, hidden away, he's saying, but it's a secret fully revealed in creation and the cross. Hallelujah. The gospel isn't secret, but it is a mystery. <clears throat> the gospel, the good news of the saving work of Jesus, is, theirs, is there for those who have eyes to see. And it was there from the very beginning of God's revelation in Scripture. In the history of Scripture, God progressively reveals more and more about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, King of the Jews, Savior of the world. And we know that because this was certainly Jesus' own understanding of the purpose of Scripture. <clears throat> No gin. <clears throat> you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Yet these are the very scriptures that testify about me, he says in John 6. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And do you remember when he was tempted in the devil, he answered the devil, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. When we read the Bible, we should see the smiling face of Jesus on every page because the Bible is his story, but the revelation of Jesus is our priority. Then in verse eight, he deals with the Gnostics and the, what he calls the elemental spiritual beliefs, and that's things like astrology and New Ageism. Verse eight says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. You see, the ancient world was dominated by the ideas of the influential elements of the spirits and stars of astrology, which said to be the queen of the sciences. Even men as great as Julius Caesar, the Emperor Augustus, cynics like Tiberius, even level-headed people like Vespasian would consult the stars and the zodiacs. Even Alexander the Great believed implicitly in the influence of the stars. There was no escaping your fate unless, of course, you knew the right password, the right formula. And that was what these pseudo-philosophers and false teachers were peddling with their books and charms and potions. They were saying, well, Jesus Christ is all very well. He can do so much for you, but he can't enable you to escape from your subjugation to the stars. Only we have the secret formula for that. Paul was, of course, a child of his age. He understood what was going on. But he's saying... You need nothing but Christ to overcome any power in the universe. For in him, in Christ, is nothing less than the fullness of God. And he is the head of every power and authority because he created them. Paul's goal for the Colossians and Paul's goal for us is that we value the knowledge of Jesus and apply his wisdom above all earthly treasure, 
all man-made sciences and philosophies. Last week, I've, most of you were here last week. Last week at the close of the service, we sang Wesley's great hymn, Amazing Love. It's my conversion hymn. It's the hymn I sang when I was converted here in this church a few years ago. And as it always does, it brought a tear to my eye and I struggled to give the blessing at the end of the service. But you see, when I came to faith here, I didn't need knowledge or academic learning. I had two O-levels. D's, I think. But I didn't need that to come to faith. In fact, I had no Christian knowledge or church background whatsoever. But when the gospel of Christ was preached from that pulpit, pulpit I instinctively knew I intuitively knew it was the truth. The hidden secret was revealed because the knowledge I received was relational and personal. And so the wisdom of Jesus is my great treasure. It's my most prized, most priceless gift. No wonder Paul says to the Colossians that his goal for them is that they may be encouraged in heart, united together in love, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that the mystery of God, namely Christ, may be known to them. No wonder he is wrestling like mad in prayer for them so they may be rooted and built up in Christ, strengthened in the faith, overflowing with thankfulness. So just to summarize, in this passage we can see, we can share three great things with Paul in his ministry. We can share a great burden, we can share a great goal, and a great delight. Paul's great burden is to struggle to wrestle in prayer and to communicate that prayer to those he's praying for as he contends for the Christ of church. That's his great burden. Paul's great goal is that we and the Colossians should grow in the knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ so that the mystery of God revealed in us, revealed in us, can be shared with others. And Paul's great delight is that thus, fully alive in Christ, we should be so strengthened in faith as to stand firm and secure whatever circumstances we face as a church fellowship. The churches in Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae would have had Paul's letters read out aloud to them and they would have drawn the same conclusions as we can draw today. The revelation of Jesus is our priority. The understanding of Jesus is our goal. And the wisdom of Jesus is our treasure. Amen, Lord. Thank you for your word. Should we just take a minute quietly before we sing our last hymn, just, just to think about that? those three things. The revelation of Jesus is our priority. The understanding of Jesus is our goal. And the wisdom of Jesus as our treasure.